Coming to you from the ugliest building in the Gulch, it's the Nashville Scenecast. I'm scene editor D. Patrick Rogers. If you like us, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate us and leave comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks to Jeff the Brotherhood for providing our intro music, Diamond Way, from the album We Are the Champions. And thanks to scene intern Jason Saita, who cuts together all of our episodes. Today's scenecast is brought to you by It's All Your Fault, a new podcast from the scene about the Nashville Predators. The show features David Beauclair and Megan Sealing talking about all things Preds. Beauclair has covered the team for two decades, which gives him as much perspective on the franchise as anyone in Nashville. Sealing was a Predators fan before even moving to Nashville five years ago, keeps a small shrine for Victor Arvidsson, and is personal friends with Peter Laviolette's turtle. That last bit may or may not be true. With one insider and one outsider and a range of guests, they'll follow the team's quest to return to the Stanley Cup Finals. You can subscribe to It's All Your Fault on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn today. This week, we at The Scene present our annual People Issue, in which we talk to some of Nashville's most interesting people. You'll meet mother and future student Shauna Arachaga, a soldier's widow who doesn't like how some people have appropriated her family's grief. You'll meet Nashville sideman and drummer extraordinaire Jerry Pentecost and student activist Catherine Ledesma Soto, along with attorney and advocate Alex Little, fiber artist Kate Madeira, and ballerina-turned-boxer Sarah London. Also in this week's People Issue, you'll read Stephen Hale's profile of historian and professor Lee Williams. Williams is an associate professor of African American and public history at TSU who runs the North Nashville Heritage Project an initiative to preserve and share stories of black history in North Nashville. This week on the Scenecast, Hale sits down to talk with Williams about some of the stories he's collected over the years and why his work is so important. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Dr. Lee Williams from Tennessee State University, who is on the phone with us uh, and has kindly agreed to speak to me again. He's one of the people featured in our People issue out this week, which you can pick up on stands or read online. Uh, Dr. Williams, thanks for being willing to spend time with me a second time. Thank you for the invitation to talk again. So uh, people read the story uh, in the People Issue this week. They'll read a little bit about you and the background uh, of the North Nashville Heritage Project that you run at TSU. But I wonder if you could give us uh, a little bit of history of how that started and kind of uh, what the seeds of that project were for you when you got to TSU. It actually um, started be, before my first class at TSU. Actually, I, I was um, I was invited by the chair of our department, Eric Schmeller, to um, participate in a project that was called the Gateway to Heritage Project. And um, what it was, it was it was a project that was designed to create a plaza underneath the interstate, right where the interstate crosses Jefferson Street toward uh, the um, the end of it that runs into TSU. So during that process, um, we were um, able to get a tour of Jefferson Street that was led by um, one of the sages of the community, um, a gentleman named Kwame Lillard. So um, it was my class and um, a geography class that was run by um, a professor named David Padgett. 
Um, we started right about 10th Avenue North and just walked down, and we heard the history of the street um, as given from Mr. Lillard. So um, when we held class the next day, we uh, students and I sat around and, and talked about what we had seen and what we had heard, and they asked me questions. And they were questions, oftentimes questions that I was totally unprepared to answer. Now, mind you, I had studied the history of the Nashville movement, right? And and I was familiar with a lot of the notable figures, such as um, um, Diane Nash and John Lewis and Bernard Lafayette and others. Right. Um, we should we should people for people who are listening who maybe haven't read the story yet. We should tell them at, by this point you're already a PhD in history. You've studied African American history and obviously are well versed in the civil rights movement. Um, right. But, but there was still stuff you were you were coming to that you hadn't thought of or and, that hadn't come up before. Yes. Yes. And um, because I, in pursuing my PhD, I had engrossed myself in the civil rights movement for about 10 years, actually. But still, once I took that to it, it got me to thinking about um, other things that I hadn't explored during um, in grad school. So um, after we talked, I just said, hey, we'll do something to figure this thing out together. And that's essentially how the North Nashville Heritage Project was born. Initially. It was just supposed to be an oral history project. As a matter of fact, their first assignments was to find somebody that grew up or were knowledgeable about the community and just interview them. And, and, and uh, I think I had them write a 12-page paper or something along those lines and, and, and record the interviews. Um, but what it did, that initial effort, got me to thinking about the community as a whole, um, whereas our initial tour focused on Jefferson Street, I started thinking um, really deeply about the streets that intersected, the people that lived in in the areas that um, that were adjacent to Jefferson Street, and that's where I started getting some of my most interesting information. From that conversation, I began to talk to my barber. When I got to Nashville, I, um, you know, I wanted to find an old school barber, right? So I'm um, somebody that was skilled with a straight razor, which is kind of funny because my hairline is receding. But you know, you can get more from a barber shop than a haircut. Um, so I found a guy um, on Jefferson Street. Um, his name was Mr. J T Smith. And and Mr. Smith's barbershop was, um, and like most barbershops, I think, um, it was a gathering place from people from all walks of life. You could have civil rights icons come through one day and then just ordinary people off the street. But I started talking about Jefferson Street and what I was doing, and he, he introduced me to a gentleman named um, Jesse Fanroy. Uh, Mr. Fanroy, who passed away about, I guess, about four years ago. He used to live on 12th Avenue North. And if you're familiar with that particular area where, you know, where 12th Avenue North intersects Jefferson Street, 
Um, one side, you still have homes there. You still have buildings. But the other side, you have a chain-link fence. And if you peer over that fence, you see I-40. Where he lived on that side where um, that had been destroyed by I-40, right? So um, I, I hooked up with him, and he began to um, meet with me. Some mornings I would go to his house and talk about Jefferson Street. And then uh, another occasion, he would meet me like at Harper's Restaurant in his truck, and then he would drive me around and talk about the community. Um, he was able to give me an interesting perspective because um, during the 1940s, his father, um, you know, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, um, basically sold what he had and bought a pickup truck, and he sold uh, coal and ice to the residents of the Jefferson Street community. And, and and that started me thinking about the economics of the community, uh, both the above ground and underground stuff. I started thinking very deeply about numbers running and so forth. Um, but that from those conversations with ordinary people, people that are oftentimes overlooked, um, this is what really... Um, really drove the, the, the project forward. And, and, and this is kind of what I'm focused on now. I, um, I'm really interested in the oral histories, but I'm also interested in the stories of the early history of the community, the stuff that um, you might not have a written record of, and, and stories that, mind you, figure prominently in um, Nashville's identity. Right, and one one thing that just has stuck with me so much from our first conversation, and I write about this in our uh, the profile that runs on our issue this week, which is is about these stories from kind of more ordinary folks. A lot of times, I think we look back on history and times like the civil rights movement, and we we imagine it as just being populated by giants. That it was just Martin Luther King and you know, people like him, it's just the names we know, and we know their stories, and we imagine them moving through history and doing what they did, but of course, actually, there are all these other people that are that are doing things and living lives that we don't know about, and um, I mentioned both of these stories in print, but you talked about meeting a woman who used to cook chicken for students and activists who would be arrested, and how she would bring a plate to the jail for the students, but then also bring one for the jailer so that the jailer would let them eat. Or you, right, you right. talked, you told me about, and these are stories I just haven't been able to shake. They're so amazing. I mean, you taught, you told me about the, the man who used to get on a bus and go down to Alabama or Mississippi and basically smuggle cash down there to bail out activists and students from Nashville who'd been arrested. I'm curious, kind of, are there other, I'm sure you have stories for days like that. Are there stories um, that you've heard in conversations in the process of collecting these oral histories that you that really stick in your mind that you just haven't been able to shake the way that I feel like I've been walking around with those since I talked to you? I, I um, and without getting really bogged down, I think the um, the most intriguing stories for me, at least. At, at the moment, um, is, is you know the their 
their uncertainty. They're not being sure how this thing is going to play out. Um, and the audacity as well, because um, when I talked to um, members of my Tiger family that came through TSU during the um, 1960s, and they, and they speak on that period, um, you know, oftentimes we... we we um we 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 think of them as being fearless, but there's a lot of uncertainty there. I I remember hearing the story about um and there's this iconic photograph of students sitting in 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 broad on Broadway. They're blocking traffic, and 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 um and I'm sure if you go to the library, the public library, the National Room, they have you can um easily access the photograph. Um, but I thought about how how insane that was during that period, because we're mindful that um, this was after um, Hattie Cotton had been bombed. This was after Z. Alexander Luby's home had been bombed. But it, it took extraordinary courage to for somebody to say, hey, we're going to go downtown at lunchtime and sit in the middle of Broadway, right. but there's also there's also a connection that I've made too. I remember during the Black Lives Matter movement when it was very very active here in the city, and students um, sat in the middle of what was that I sixty five or I twenty four, right, and, right, um, and um, that made me rethink. Um, you know, just rethink the 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 type of people that were involved in because you need a, a certain audacity. I think that we associate with youth. We need a, a certain group of people that are willing to step out into situations that might be insane to us, look on the outside, or to make a change. But um, those types of stories. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say it's it's so true when we know the ending, it's it's easy for us to forget what it was like for the people living it, you know, because we know that the Civil Rights Act eventually is passed and that that at least a measure of equality or closer to something like equality is achieved. And so right, right. and so it's easy for us to forget that for the people sitting on Broadway that day, it it was there was nothing certain about it. Um you, one thing you mentioned too, and I uh, was that very recently you've been uh, looking into the stories of uh, African American women in Nashville's history. Uh, you you talked about Nettie Napier, and um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that work and what you found doing that research. Um, that we have some amazing women who came out of this community, right? And, and um, I, of course, we, and, and I'm mindful of this, we have um, historians out there that are addressing this issue far better than I can. Matter of fact, we have two um, at TSU, um, Katie Ewing and Keisha Brown, who um, are going to do, do much to um, to um, address this deficit, but we um, we haven't paid enough 
attention to them, um, at least within the confines of Davidson County. Um, I'm intrigued by Nettie Napier um, because she would have um, she would have been extraordinary if she had never set foot in Nashville. Her her father was John Mercer Langston, um, prominent black politician from um, from the abolitionist period to Reconstruction, but. Um, she marries J.C. Napier, who um, would become one of Nashville's brightest lights. But she comes here and she gets very much involved in um, in the women's club movement. And that's one of the areas that we talked about that I think we may need to do more work on here. But they, their targets were primarily... Um, young black women. They figured that if they could elevate young black women, then um, the, the race as a whole would benefit. But um, she is one. Another is um, a lady named Josie Wells. And we probably need to have a statue of Josie Wells somewhere around Nashville. Um, she earned her medical degree at Meharry. And if I remember correctly, around the turn of the century, she sets up an office right at the corner of Fourth and 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 Charlotte. It was Cedar Street back then. But her practice was geared primarily toward women and children, and she treated black women and 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 white women, black children and and white children. Um, as far as I could tell, she was the only woman who had a shop on that corner. So um, I don't know, and I, and I actually stumbled across her by accident. I was doing research on women's clubs for this paper I was presenting, and um, I, I I stumbled across her, and it appears that um, not much work has been done on her. Um, other than that, I know that she is not the only one. Um, the women who taught at Pearl High School who affected generations of, of black children here in Nashville. I'm certain that they need to be celebrated as well. So um, there's a lot of research that needs to be done, and I'm encouraging my students as we speak um, to pay attention to them for these papers that are going to write for me. It's um, due in a couple of weeks, actually. So another thing we um, talked about was the history of slavery in Nashville and, and slave trading um, and, and some of the actual physical spaces in Nashville where that took place and how, um, for the most part, those things are – we don't, we don't have markers for those. We don't have much, of it, much acknowledgement for that history. Um, I want are to talk – go ahead. Um, and even in our conversations about it, we we only give it lip service. I um, it's interesting that you asked this. I'm actually working on writing a proposal for a historical marker um, for the sale of slaves. I would the best place that I can think of it right now would be somewhere on the public square because every single Saturday. During the antebellum period, it, it seemed as though um, 
they were auctioning off slaves there. Um, but there are other places as well. From the public square on up to about 4th Avenue North, um, you had slave brokers that set up shop there. And, and we, the record is pretty clear on that. If you go to any Nashville paper um, that was published prior to 1865 and just go to the classified acts, um, they'll give you descriptions of, of uh, men, women, and children that are being sold, and they're basically saying, come to the public square. Um, that history still needs to be explored. There's always work to be done, to be sure, but um, I'm really interested in how we look at it in terms of public memory. Yeah, and thousands of... Um, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask you, you, said, you mentioned that you're working on a proposal. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what the process for that is. So you're, in, in terms of the process for getting this kind of acknowledgement, getting a historical marker and, and getting some of those things. One, because just for our, for information purposes, but also, I mean, people listening to this, that may be something they want to support. I wonder what the process for that is going forward. How does that happen? Um, the, um, we have a state historical marker program that's directed by, um, uh, a physical professor named Linda Wynn. Um, what you do is um, you draft a proposal that meets their guideline, and then you submit it, and um, it goes before a board who approves it. They say yay or nay. And if approved, um, um, I think the fee for casting it is about fourteen $1,400. But once you do that and it's approved, then they will place it. And you see them all around town for for various things. There's a heck of a lot of Civil War markers here in Nashville. And I can understand that because Tennessee was the second largest um, theater in the war. Um, but you really have to look to find... Um, those for African Americans, and and I don't. As I sit here and talk to you, I can't think of many that deal with slavery, or or women for that matter. Um, but um, I'm currently working on writing the proposal, and um, hopefully I have it completed by the end of the month. Um. And getting the fourteen hundred dollars—that's a different thing. I'll I'll, uh, I'll appeal to people in the community and see what I can come up with, and then um, hit on some of my friends, and then um, we'll we'll uh, we'll come up with the cash. I'm I'm pretty certain about that. Well, I want to let you go here in a minute, but um, to close, I wonder if you could kind of—I'm sure that you come people come to you with this sort of question all the time, or you hear this kind of question, which is kind of what is the value of this work? Why? There are a lot of people in America, um, you know, especially white folks, who it, for whom it's easier to kind of keep looking forward and believe that, you know, well, better things are ahead and not want to dig through a lot of this very devastating history. Why do you think it's so important to do that? Um. To exclude it in the way that it has, and you know, some of this has been intentional, and, and some 
it's not dance because you know we just forget it. But um, if we're going to tell our story and exclude all this stuff, then we're kind of lying to ourselves, lying to the world about who we are. Um, Nashville embraces the identity of being the music city. But I humbly submit to you that it would not be the music city without the African-American presence here. So we recently did some work out at Fort Negley to prevent them from developing it, right? Right. Um, thousands of African-Americans came in. They did not come to the city empty-handed. Um, their culture contributed to what this city is. But more importantly, I think, um, the blood, sweat, and tears of folks that were enslaved in the city helped it to become what it would become during the antebellum period and beyond. Um, Andrew Jackson's wealth was based upon the labor he was able to get out of his ladies, the uncompensated labor. Labor. You can't talk about Belmont or the Acklands or any of that without the labor of your slaves. So if you're celebrating this and you don't include all these other histories, all these marginalized voices, then um, then you, you're doing a disservice to the history. And in, in my mind, you're actually lying to the people. Um, so what this history does is it tells us a lot about ourselves, our identity, who we are going forward, what we represent. Well, Dr. Williams, I uh, really thank you for the work you're doing and really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me yet again. Um, uh, the so the pleasure was mine. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you.